episode 43 of the State of the Old Republic podcast, was originally recorded on June 26th, 2017. It's the State of the Old Republic podcast. show this week, Bad Feeling Podcast did an interview with Keith Koenig. I'll talk about what Keith had to say about the roadmap, server merges, class balance, and more. Communication was the topic of the week on the SWOTOR forums. I'll talk about how they gather, analyze, and apply that feedback to the game. And finally this week, I'll do another round of SWOTOR potpourri for 200 as I discuss a few random bits from the forums. And with that, it's time to make the jump to light speed and check out the state of the Old Republic. Well, welcome to episode 43 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and as you heard in the opening, I have another terrific show lined up for you today. First up, let's review some announcements for the Old Republic. And I am going to run through these quickly because I have got a lot of ground to cover today. So the summer of SWOTOR is here and it is happening so here are some of the events uh, going on this summer. The Narshadad Nightlife event, in case you've forgotten, is still going on. We'll run all the way through sometime in August. Uh, Bounty Contract Week is here, and it's going to run from June 27th through July 11th, making it a Bounty Contract Fortnite. And there will be a Double XP and Double Valor event that runs from July 1st through the 5th. Game Update 5.3 will go live later in July, likely on the 11th, 18th, or 25th. Take your pick. And finally, Game Update 5.4 will go live sometime in August. And that's all of the announcements that I have right now. So let's slice the holonet and review the news this week. Now, if you don't listen to the Bad Feeling podcast, then you are doing it wrong Bad Feeling did an interview with SWOTOR game producer Keith Koenig, and it is a must-listen-to interview. Now, I'm not going to cover everything Keith had to say, but he did talk about how they plan the roadmap, server merges, class balance, and overall communication, and I wanted to comment on these since many of these topics came up on the forums this week. Now, I actually had the pleasure of meeting Keith at the Star Wars Celebration Orlando Cantina Tour back in April, And, of course, I asked him all of the hard questions like, hey, these T-shirts you're handing out are really nice. Why don't you guys make more SWOTOR swag? And, of course, I asked if I could have another drink ticket, please. So that's how I roll here, folks. That's how I roll. But lucky for you, Bad Feeling asked about the things that are weighing on everybody's minds these days. And one of those topics was the roadmap. And Keith talked about how they decide what goes in it. And one of the things that struck me was that BioWare's fiscal year begins in April. So right now they're actually in FY 2018, and the stuff they're planning actually takes them through April of 2018. Now that doesn't mean everything they want to do is 100% locked down, but they have a pretty solid idea of what they want to do between now and next April. And I've talked about the possibility of another expansion and how I don't see it fitting into calendar year 2017. 
Knowing that the roadmap extends to April of 2018, I am willing to bet that the roadmap does indeed include an expansion and that we will probably see it at the end of the roadmap near that April time frame. The Gods from the Machine Operation only has one boss right now and they need time to release the remaining bosses and we need time to defeat those bosses and they're also planning to do master modes for those bosses and that mode typically comes later so we need time to progress and defeat master mode before getting a new level cap and another gear reset. Now Keith also reiterated that he's committed to updating the roadmap each quarter and keeping us updated on what they're planning. So expect to see updates coming probably again sometime in August and then again after that. Keith also talked about server merges, which was interesting because Keith hit the forums this week to say that they weren't ready to talk about server merges. And yet he had some great information in this interview, which I believe was done right around the same time that the server merge thread went up on the forums. In other words, his comments in this interview came before his we're not ready to discuss this comment on the forums. The big reveal was that cross-server is not going to happen. They just don't have the technology to do it, and he said it's not the game engine, that it's actually other back-end stuff that's preventing them from doing it. And that's too bad, because ultimately that would have been a good compromise and allowed people in guilds to stay where they are. He did say that they don't have the ability to move guilds right now, and that they would want to keep them intact. He brought up something I raised as a concern in episode 41, and that's how do you merge legacies? If you have multiple legacy cargo holds that are tapped out, do you give everyone more tabs? That's a question that Keith asked as a way of pointing out the many issues they need to solve. He said they need to analyze every piece of it and figure out what people really want. He also said if they were to do something, it would likely be a new server that we'd have to move to. And he understands that not everyone wants to move, that not everyone wants to be on a high pop server. There are people who like where they are and want to stay there and he'd like to preserve that option for them. It's definitely a tricky situation and by definition high population servers are composed of the majority of the player base which means low population servers are composed of the minority of the player base. This is a situation where the majority might end up pissed off in the end because their situation is not vastly improved. It's the majority of the players who stand to benefit the least from this. They're the ones who will be fixated on losing their names and having to redecorate their strongholds because their queue times won't be that different from what they are today. If you're a player from a low pop server, you'll probably be more tolerant of the situation because you'll be like, yeah, I lost my name and had to redecorate, but holy crap, I got into a war zone in five seconds. If you're from a high pop server, you're going to go into a war zone and seek out the low pop guys and want to kill them over and over again. Your teammates are going to be like, dude, why didn't you cap that turret? And you'll be like, because that guy is from a low pop server and he has my name. They need to tread lightly here and figure out what is the problem and what is the best way to address it. As Keith said in the interview, what is it that players want? Are the majority of players willing to endure the pain of a merge for the benefit of a minority of players? I am not that altruistic myself. One thing Keith did say is they'd like to improve the current group finder. He noted that it can take a long time to find a group. You generally have to stand around the fleet asking in general chat for things like veteran mode ops. He said it would be nice if they could do that via the group finder. And he'd also said they'd like to add some incentives for people as well. These are all things that World of Warcraft has added to their group finder, and I have to say they work quite well. Whether it's questing or filling a raid slot, it's very nice, and I think this type of change 
would have a pretty big impact on the game. Maybe in the short term, they just need to add a message on the low pop servers that flashes whenever you're in queue that says, hey, if you were on Harbinger, you'd be in a war zone right now, parentheses, assuming the server is up. Class balance was another topic that Keith talked about with bad feeling, and he said when it comes to class balance, they don't like to do it in the middle of a season, which makes sense as the last thing they want to do is introduce a new flavor of the month in the middle of a competition. He said the biggest changes should be coming in game updates 5.3 and 5.4, and then they'll continue to tweak things after that. This could very well be a three-month process and even an ongoing process. He said that they look at what needs to be nerfed, what needs to be buffed, and what needs to be slightly tweaked, and then they prioritize based on that. In fact, Eric Musco posted on why they buff and nerf rather than just buff everything. And to that, he said, the main point you need to understand is that we balance classes slash disciplines based on specific DPS, HPS, and DTPS targets. Now, those balance targets not only dictate class slash discipline balance, but they dictate balance across all combat in the entire game. Every mission, operation, boss, piece of gear, and more is all factored around those balance targets. Let's say that our hypothetical target for ranged burst is 1,000 DPS, and that Arsenal Mercs are currently performing at 1,200 DPS. This means that they are killing everything in the game 20% faster than we intended them to. And he writes that like it's a bad thing, but I don't know. And again, every boss, that's every boss in every mission, the inverse is true of classes that have lower than desired DPS. If we took every class and moved it so that it was equal to the highest performing one, now everyone would be way stronger than we intended based on our balanced targets. PvE content in general would become too easy. The time to kill in PvP would go down quite a bit, making for less counterplay. The only way we'd be, we would be able to move everyone up to the best class is if we simultaneously rebalance the entire game to be equal to that new target. That kind of thing typically only happens when we increase the level cap as it is a massive undertaking. TLDR, the entire game's combat resolves around balance targets. To keep things in line, we have to move classes up or down to be around that target or it throws things off greatly from their intended balance. And that's the key takeaway here, is that they balance around target DPS. And that is clearly the focus of what they're doing for game updates 5.3 and 5.4. In fact, they released the proposed changes for three more disciplines this week, and they were Pyrotech Power Tech, Plasma Tech Vanguard, which were buffed, Corruption Sorcerer and Seer Counselor, which were nerfed big time, and Virulent Sniper and Dirty Fighting Gunslinger, which were also nerfed. Now, I don't play any of these disciplines, so I'm not going to get into a lot of detail here. I can barely speak intelligently about Arsenal Mercs, which is my main, so there's no way I'll do any of these disciplines justice with my commentary other than to say that the Pyrotech slash Plasmatech changes centered around bringing the discipline up to its target DPS while the Corruption, Seer, and Virulent Dirty Fighting changes were centered around bringing those disciplines down to their target HPS slash DPS, respectively. So if you love the changes or hate the changes, there are plenty of avenues for you to provide feedback, which was the topic of the week on the forums. And Eric, Keith, and Charles all stopped by the forums and talked about feedback and where they get it, how they process it, and how it translates to changes for the game. And Eric kicked things off by talking about his role in the various sources they go to for feedback. And he said what he does is, 
ensure the decision makers such as Keith and Charles understand the impact their decisions will have on the player base. He said, players come from all walks of life and play styles, and so it is extremely important we understand and consider everyone in our discussion. An example would be these very forums. Those of you who post here represent a small percentage of the overall player base. All our subscribers and lean towards a handful of specific, highly engaged play styles. If we only looked at the forums, it would cover a narrow band of feedback. This in no way diminishes the immense value we garner from your participation here, so please don't take that as a slight. Now let's talk about some of the various places we get feedback. And Eric went on to note that their main sources of feedback include the official forums and SWOTOR subreddit, which they view as similar, uh, social media, mainly Twitter, uh, the influencers, and focus groups. Now there may be other sources for feedback, that, uh, but that covers quite a gamut of information for my part. I don't visit the forums all that much. I do read a lot of what's on the SWOTOR subreddit. I do like that, but I don't participate in that as much as I should. I do spend a fair bit of time on Twitter and will tweet out to at SWOTOR and Eric and Charles Boyd. In fact, this week I made a suggestion that they add more jackets and regular clothing to the game. I included a screenshot of a current item called the Dreliad jacket, which was similar to what I was looking for. That jacket, by the way, looks great. The problem with it is it's Jedi and Smuggler only, and I want to use it on many of my characters. I also included a picture of the Vanity Fair cover that had Poe Dameron, Finn, and Rose as another reference of the type of outfits that I'd love to see. And I got a simple reply from Charles Boyd saying, great idea. Now, is that going to translate into action? Are we going to see jackets and regular clothing come to a cartel pack near you? I have no idea. And I'm not expecting it to. I just planted a seed, I had an idea, and I presented it, and it was acknowledged. And that's all I can really ask. Now, when it comes to delivering feedback, Eric had this advice for the community. And he said, the most important thing you can ever put in feedback is why. Saying that you do or don't like something is helpful. Telling us why is invaluable. This way, when I am passing feedback onto the team, I can highlight not only just the sentiment, positive or negative, but also give supporting context for that feeling. And then Keith came in and talked about what's important for him regarding feedback, and this is what he said. Since Eric already explained where we get feedback and essentially how we use it, let me provide some perspective about what I look for and what's important to me. And these were specific ideas about gameplay improvements, ideas on how we can enhance existing game features, conversations about gearing, class balance, details about likes and dislikes about an area or type of content, how we can improve communication and provide better insight, kudos for the team when we do something right, constructive criticism when we don't do things right, note I tend to read everything while disregarding rants or dumping on the dev team as I don't find it helpful, virtually all of the comments in our discussion threads. So what does that, what does any of that have to do with how does our feedback work? Everything. Specifically, I leverage all the feedback you provide. I personalize it by blending it, blending it into how I play the game. Then I communicate it to the dev team and I follow up to see how best to respond, determine the priority of the request, add it to the backlog or adjust the schedule to incorporate the change into the game. But we all know talk is cheap, and until there's action behind our words, skepticism remains, and I'm okay with that. So you heard it from Keith, talk is cheap. So how exactly does feedback turn into actions? Well, both Keith and Charles addressed that this week. And first, here's what Keith said regarding their ability to course correct when they receive overwhelmingly negative feedback. And... 
Keith said, and someone posed the question like, wow, look, the overwhelming feedback says we're going in the wrong direction. Should we turn around or just ignore it? And Keith said, that's not easy to answer as it really depends on the actual topic and the timing of it. Perhaps an example would help illustrate. Operations boss fight. Let's say it was a couple months from release and we placed it on the PTS and the feedback said it wasn't fun. Fight was too easy or too hard. They didn't like the mechanics or something similar. We absolutely review the feedback, reach out to the players, openly discuss what's up, what is causing them pain, and we make adjustments. Anyone who has participated in Tithe or the Avela and Esne fights can probably back me up, but they are under NDA. And then someone asked, where along the journey is the point of no return? Is it before the bus starts moving, before the bus approaches the corner, before the cliff, or as you drive off the cliff or when you crash? And Keith said this, Timing is everything, but sometimes it will depend on implementation and whether we can truly do an about-face or simply have to go forward and plan slash prepare for changes along the way. Galactic Command is a perfect example. It was so integral to everything with Knights of the Eternal Throne that we were not in a position to make the changes everyone requested. Requested, We had to go forward or delay Kotet an unknown number of months. That wasn't possible, and as a result, we made galactic command changes with every patch since that time. Even though it's not perfect, it is no longer the primary means of gearing up, but the changes we implemented allow every level 70 character to obtain best-in-slot gear without doing operations. I disagree with the notion we should rip it out now, but I do agree we can still improve upon it and will continue to do so. And then the person asked, do you ever swerve, turn, or put the brakes on? And Key said this, That happens all the time, but you may never notice. I can tell you this, though, and I know it's not fair because you don't know what was planned, but the the end-of-the-year changes are very different today than they were just a few weeks ago. We did that based on various internal discussions, feedback from sources, Musco listed, determining what was a priority, and the impact to schedule based on what we could slash wanted to deliver. Whew, okay. I love this response, and I especially like what Keith said about Galactic Command, because we now have a better understanding on why Galactic Command was released in its initial state, despite a lot of player concerns. Looking back at the release of Knights of the Eternal Throne, this is how I perceived Galactic Command. They announced Galactic Command, they received a bunch of negative feedback, they released it anyway, and then once the player base turned up the volume on the negative feedback, changes were ultimately implemented. Reading Keith's post, it's more likely that they came up with the idea for Galactic Command and they got a bunch of negative feedback before it was released. They assessed what changes needed to be made and then they looked at the level of effort to do those changes and waited against the current schedule and opted to release it in the state that we saw for 5.0 rather than delay everything. Now, I don't know if they had the authority or even the desire to delay Knights of the Eternal Throne, but clearly they felt it was at least good enough for release And you know what? It's not perfect, but Galactic Command is in a pretty good state right now. So as far as I'm concerned, it's kind of water under the bridge at this point. And I will say this. I love the fact that they're willing to take risks with the game. And it was Wayne Gretzky who said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And I will take a few misses if it means getting something amazing down the road. Okay, so the last bit on communication came from Charles Boyd, who talked about how they incorporated our feedback on Knights of the Fallen on the Knights of the Fallen Empire story to shape how they delivered Knights of the Eternal Throne, and he said this. 
And he said, let's use Knights of the Fallen Empire, the monthly chapters, and Knights of the Eternal Throne as the example. And he said, the original plan was that we would have a trilogy of Knights of Expansions focused on dealing with Valkorion and his Eternal Empire with episodic chapters between them. The major story beats would occur in the expansions, while the episodic chapters would be just that, episodic, mostly standalone beats focused on returning companions and side stories. The most common issues that we saw from the community feedback after Knights of the Fallen Empire and the few first few monthly chapters were, one, the story felt dragged out, monthly chapters in particular. Two, at least partly due to number one, the companion-focused chapters were not as well received as the Knights of the Fallen Empire ones, although the desire to get companions back remained high. Three, many players felt that there weren't enough choices in the storyline with big enough impact slash consequences or that those impact slash consequences were delayed so far that they didn't feel meaningful or connected. And four, some folks simply didn't like the core premise, introducing a new empire, expanding on Vitiate slash Valkorion, players frozen in carbonite for five years, missing companions, etc. Now, changes that were made as a result of that feedback. So one, we compressed the story such that it would be completed in Knights of the Eternal Throne. Two, later monthly chapters were modified to focus more on the core storyline, less on companion returns. Three, the writers constructed the storyline of Knights of the Eternal Throne specifically to offer bigger choices that would pay off in visible and interesting ways. And four, this was the core creative vision of the entire thing, so there wasn't much changed here. It really wouldn't be feasible. That's not to say that we ignored this feedback or don't take it seriously. It's just that any creative endeavor has some core concept at its heart that can't be changed without scrapping everything. This was the story direction that excited us as creators and fans, so it's the one we pursued even as we made the above changes along the way. And the final thing he said here was, you know, the end result, the overall storyline was cut down by more than a third so that it would play out more quickly while simultaneously introducing more choices and consequences. Companion returns had to be put on the back burner to achieve these changes and my original plan to do entire chapters for each of them just aren't feasible at this point. So we're currently working on plans to get them back as expediently as possible. And he said, overall, story is one of the most difficult areas to implement feedback since we've usually constructed the next several beats by the time players see any of it and provide feedback. But hopefully this post helps to demonstrate that we still try very hard to implement feedback-driven changes into story regardless of the challenges. And then Charles had one follow-up post where he said this. One last note about numbers. It's commonly asked how we balance feedback against data and metrics. So this is a great place to use as an example Numerically speaking, Knights of the Fallen Empire and Knights of the Eternal Throne were our most successful expansions by a very significant margin. We didn't change anything in the story based on numbers. The numbers would have said to keep doing exactly what we were doing. We changed them based on the passionate feedback we received from y'all. Regarding the story, in terms of what they come up with, it's like making a movie or a television show. This is what they get paid to do, and you hope that they know what people are going to like, but really, it, it's it's a, it's a crapshoot. And, you know, as far as the pacing goes, I like the monthly chapters of Fallen Empire, mainly because I was playing solo for that expansion. I was in a guild, but I didn't do anything with them, and as a solo player, it kept me engaged, and it kept me coming back each month and allowed me to progress other tunes through the story in a very manageable way. I would not have minded if they had done the same thing with Knights of the Eternal Throne, 
I am I am glad though that they wrapped up the story in Knights of the Eternal Throne rather than drag it out for a third expansion. Did it wrap up every loose end? No, but by the end I had enough of Valkorian and his crazy family. And it was nice to see Charles explain the original vision and how they arrived at some of the decisions that they did. I think story is the one thing that they consistently do at a high level in this game. So that's it for communication and feedback. Now let me shift to another round of SWOTOR Potpourri for 200 and review a few miscellaneous items from this past week. And Keith commented on a bug report about the 246 crafted relics. And he said, I saw your message the other day but needed to follow up with the design team. Definitely a bug as the crafted relics are using the wrong stats. I confirmed we'll fix them in patch 5.3. As also note, you will not need to remake your relics, so hang on to them as we'll apply the proper stats. So if you have crafted any 246 relics, don't vendor them, don't delete them, don't REM or anything. Just hang on to them and they will be corrected when uh, game update 5.3 releases in July. Uh, Keith also addressed a question on add-ons for SWOTOR. And his response was to a player who was saying add-ons are a bad idea, and here's what Keith said. Agreed. Plus, the amount of coordination it would take with any third-party developers could be horrifying, and if they coded it wrong, it breaks the game. I think we do well enough on our own there, but definitely interested with improving the UI to make it easier for us healers. I mean, uh, everyone. Now, as someone who plays World of Warcraft, a game that supports add-ons, I don't miss them at all in this game, and I think we're better off without them, and having gone five years without them, I think the ship has sailed on this one, so I really don't see a need for add-ons in this game. And finally this week, Eric Musco posted some changes for cartel packs that will go live with the Dreadlords pack on June 27th, and each pack will now contain five slots instead of the previous four. And here's what each slot looks like. So slot one is a guaranteed new pack item, and these items are all of silver rarity or higher. Slot two will be any cartel market item of any rarity up to platinum. Armor sets will drop as complete sets, and grand chance cubes can drop in this slot. Slot number three, any cartel market item of bronze or silver rarity. Armor sets will drop as complete sets, and grand chance cubes can also drop in this slot. Slot number four will be a companion gift, and slot five, Java scraps. So I guess this is okay. Uh, that second slot seems a bit silly to me. It can drop any cartel market item of any rarity up to platinum or a grand chance cube, which if I understand grand chance cubes correctly, they can drop any cartel market item of any rarity up to platinum. So if you could get a chance cube from opening up a chance cube, this is exactly what it would look like. So unless the majority of people prefer to sell the grand chance cubes rather than open them, I think the slot should just drop an item and save you the extra click of opening the cube if that's what you get. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how this stuff works. Um, but I will say this. There are some nice items in that Dreadlord pack, though, which does release on June 27th. So that's all I have for this week. Uh, let me cue the music and congratulate you on surviving another half hour listening to episode 43 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and I thank you for tuning in. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and Buzzsprout. You can also listen to the show directly from the show site, which is SotorPodcast.com. And there is an RSS feed where you can subscribe to the podcast directly. 
If you have a question for the show, you can email me at sotorpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet your questions to at sotorpodcast and be sure to follow me on Twitter to get the latest information on the show. And look for episode 44 on July 4th, 2017. And remember the Sith Code, cake is a lot.